Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Molo, Sambunani, hello, how's it? Welcome to another episode of the IRR show. Uh, the show, of course, is the show that um, discusses the week's issues through the lens of classical liberalism. Um, good morning and welcome to it. Sorry, good morning. I hope you're with us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you uh, in one form. I'm not sure if I'm with you in all forms. <laughs> Uh, the shotgun is taking quite a heavy toll on uh, uh, people's sanity, at least mine. Um, yeah. When it comes to just, you know, that, that weird feeling of not being productive, you know, just sitting mm-hmm. idly at home. It's, a, it's an odd feeling for, for so many. I think it's strange because for some it's exactly that, and for others they're working almost too hard because there aren't any time limits that an office usually generates. So if you wake up at 6 in the morning, you can start working, and at 8 o'clock at night, you can still be working, and you tend not to create the balance that you need. So people, but anyway, I think people have a kind of very strange exhaustion. It's either that sort of exhaustion, or it's just, as you say, a sort of psychological exhaustion. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Speaking about an exhausting uh, uh, issue. I, I'm, I'm going to exhaust you, dear listener, with good, brilliant radio content today on the IRR show. After this break, as always on the show, we're going to spend 10 minutes looking at the news week that was. What were some of the big uh, news items, the topics that had you chatting? We're going to break them down and provide some analysis through the lens of classical liberalism, as I said. And um, again, some big news items that I think we need to uh, chew the fat on. Uh, we'll do that after the break, uh, just after 10 past 9. And of course, our major feature of the day, the big interview with Chris Hatting from the Free Market Foundation. Chris, of course, will join us at 9.20 as we look at, um, yes, surprise, surprise, not only the lockdown, but what is now becoming the economic impact, the, the economic bite, if you will, of this lockdown as it begins to cripple not only many uh, businesses around the country, but whole sectors of the economy. We're also going to ask Chris about the campaign that the Free Market Foundation led, uh, or rather joined a, um, a an association of informal traders, which was, it had a tinge of civil disobedience to it. So we're going to ask Chris about that. That's going to be quite exciting. And of course, we'll end the show, uh, as we usually do, by looking at the news week that uh, we think we're going to see in the next week. So um, stay tuned, grab a cup of tea. Good morning to you, and uh, we'll see you after this short ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Hi, welcome back to the IRR show. I'm so used to a an, an, a live ad read. Um, no, there sorry. isn't any today, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the, uh, mm. the 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 newsweek. Um, mm. It's been dominated, if you will, by what's becoming now. Um, I don't know if I should call it the the, the ever increasingly clearer political 
ramifications for what's happening as a society becomes increasingly more resentful of the lockdown and and you know it, it becomes a, a source of pain for many people uh, what's your observations been um, my, my sense is that the, the government is sort of on the back foot because it's been asked to justify its decision making and it hasn't done so and I, I mean that's simply as in if you ban the sale of, of tobacco products why? What is the reason for it? And I understand that they are now considering, in Kuzuzan Lamini Zoom is now considering releasing the reasons for it. Well, two things. Why are they even considering? Why, why don't they just do it? And releasing suggests that they're, that they're doing us a big favor by giving this, us this information at all. And it's showing that proclivity to confuse the fact that they govern, not rule. They think they rule. We are their subjects. And that's becoming apparent in the increasing disgruntlement because the nature of the lockdown and the justification for it is changing here and globally, um, as well as the fact that people are becoming a little concerned, or not a little concerned, a lot concerned that the medical data is not there's not enough of it to actually weigh up the, what what the impact of it actually is, and people are starting to feel that they're being treated like idiots, and I, I think that's a huge problem. I I would agree, and a, a, just a cursory observation of the seeming disdain in, in the tone, at least, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. now beginning to sort of rear its head. Mm-hmm. Um, that's beginning, if anything, to wear out all the goodwill that had initially been sort of garnered by, you know, our ruling elite in this country mm-hmm. is, is stoking up an anger which I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it since the days of perhaps, um, you know, the Zuma must fall days mm-hmm. where people could physically express it by being on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think you're seeing now, and ironically, it's also being physically represented to an extent in how people are civilly disobedient. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about what happened on this last Sunday, for instance. Um, I don't know if you saw it on your side, but on mm-hmm. my social media, I saw tons and tons and tons of people uh, posting pictures of, hey, Mother's Day bride, look at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. pictures of 10, 12, 15, mm-hmm. 20 people around mm-hmm. the bride. I was like, mm, hang on, I'm not sure 20 people live at this mm. person's house. So clearly these people are <laughs> gathering um, for, you know, and, and essentially just saying, you know, forget these lockdown rules um, mm. for different reasons, of course. But, uh, you know, it, clearly there is that streak of civil disobedience mm. that, that's now beginning to creep out. Um, but let me put this to you, sorry, and I want to get your impression. This Sunday in uh, City Press, I think, mm. uh, Trevor Manuel, the former finance minister under the Invegi years, Mm-hmm. Writes an op-ed, pens an op-ed piece, basically also saying, hey, you know, these regulations are firstly um, illogical, they're irrational, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a big problem for a government. And there is a streak of almost a, a, a meanness, a mendaciousness mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. That's big words coming from someone like Trevor, Trevor mm-hmm. Manuel. Mm. No, it, it's very much symptomatic. You see, I think what, and linked to what this and what we said before, what the government hasn't understood is at the outset we they had people's goodwill because you were dealing with something very serious that affected everyone, um, and no one knew much about how it, what it was and how it should be dealt with. 
And the challenge to a government is once things become clearer, uh, that's when it actually becomes more difficult because that's when your, your communication to your, um, to your citizenry, uh, has to become much more detailed and much less patronizing, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, our government has not responded. What it's done is it's gone into its sort of, what I call it sort of, um, lager of self-absorption that relates to, you know, they are government and, and what they say, what they say stands and you must just accept it. And that's very much the style of much of the cabinet, um, led by Nkazazana Dlamini Zuma, um, Aaron Motswaledi, people like that. And then when the, when the, there's the about turn on the cigarette sales and, uh, the, the president rather lamely says, well, you know, we had a, this large sort of a, a discussion amongst the whole in triple C and we decided to change our minds and it wasn't a singular decision. Uh, I don't think it occurred to him for a moment how absolutely we'll see that looked. I, I, I agree. Sorry, I, I agree. I, I just had a, a, another thought mm. that I wanted to delve into because we sort of spoke about it last night um, when we were mm. comparing notes for what we want to look at in the show. Mm. And that is the political ramifications for what's mm. happening um, mm-hmm. and the fallout. Mm. And this is a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, postulating. But but let's let's hash out our thoughts here for mm-hmm. for the listener based on what we're seeing. And I want to put it to you, Saren, mm-hmm. that with an upcoming local government election, mm. where historically, if you look at the data, the ANC always does. Um, below par, like it, mm-hmm. it, it always struggles to bring out its voters at this sort of election. If you're stoking up this much anger and resentment under the lockdown, and you have a mm-hmm. local government election in a few months next year, mm-hmm. um, surely your prospects are not looking good. And people like France Cronier have, have cited um, yeah. perhaps it might be dismal results for the ANC. Yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, France basically, and uh, I, I commend you to uh, the Daily Friend website where you can read and listen to his, his insights on it, basically says the ANC would likely fall with, within the decade. Um, but I think what's happened here is, you know, the ANC didn't do that well in the last election. If you think that the, I think the percentage of people who were eligible to vote who neither um, registered nor voted was about 37%. So the ANC made its its 57% odd on the remaining percentage. So that's already not so great. Now, usually what what any political party should do, and and I think the DA is trying admirably to to do this, is you you, you re-look at yourself. You you look, look at your vision. You look at how you're doing it who you're appealing to, what you need to do differently, how you need to change it, policies, et cetera, et cetera. And one has absolutely no sense that the government has been going through this process, that the ANC, rather, has been going through this process at all. Um, and then with this lockdown, not only, obviously, the, the ramifications of large numbers of people dreadfully uh, financially um, uh, affected by it, uh, leading to the potential of, of significant starvation and malnutrition, it's it's like... It's almost Alice in Wonderlandish that the 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 the, the is sort of sitting there watching this all happen around it, but it's 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 like twiddling its thumbs. It's it's very very strange, and I don't think it portends at all well for the ANC for the next election. I think any party that can hold its head up, or a, 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 we were chatting about a, a new conservative um, black-led party, I, I think it's going to be a very very interesting election. Indeed, a strong contender. Um, mm. 
but uh, I, I must sort of close this off here. We'll, we'll pick this conversation up maybe after our Benja interview. Uh, after the break, we will be joined by Chris Hatting from the Free Market Foundation. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to your listener. Um, wow, the ad breaks are really short today. It's actually rather <laughs> fantastic. Um, as I mentioned, we, we, we're going to have Chris Hatting join us. I'm not sure he's on the line. Let me just give it a quick test. Chris, good morning. Are you with us? Okay. Short answer is no. So uh, we're going to be working out those gremlins and those bugs and trying to reach Chris. Um, sorry, maybe let me pick up where mm. we sort of mm. left before um, the yeah. break. And I, I'm going to try and pivot, pivot us towards the economic side of things. Mm. Um, maybe the socioeconomic side of things in anticipation, of course, of Chris joining us once he does. The, the, the frustration, as I mentioned perhaps before the break, also extends to what I believe is a weird awakening that South mm-hmm. Africans are experiencing because of the reality of what's happening, mm. which is you simply cannot, it, 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 it feasibly is not possible to live off of someone else at a time where you've been mm. prevented from providing for yourself. Let me be precise mm. and specific. There's two sort of major uh, epiphanies happening I can observe at least in society. The one is from the middle class who, mm-hmm. you know, as the check didn't come in last month, quickly realized how, you know, a lot of us are just one or two paychecks away from, you know, from grinding poverty or from just poverty, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and for poorer South Africans who already know the story, they then were forced, obligated by the state, to look to the state for support and sustenance and the state's just sheer ineptness um, it's sheer corruption. It's sheer, you know, the grinding, slowly grinding wheel of the bureaucracy proved itself to not be able to do what often a leftist type government will, will claim it can do, which is provide for mm. everybody. You know, with food parcels, for example, being uh, pilfered and stolen by, you know, wily politicians and they don't reach the, the poor. Uh, you know, things like a social grant, for example, the administration of it still being as bulky and inefficient. Mm. You know, we, we saw crazy lines mm. um, and an unpreparedness by the social security agency in this country. Surely the epiphany is, is rising amongst people mm. that a trust in the state, regardless of who's behind it, it's not necessarily an attack on the ANC per se, but just a trust of the state is, mm. is perhaps erroneous. I'll answer the, I'll respond quickly because I believe Chris is on the line, but what I, ah. my concern is, and, and it, probably because I'm, I'm sort of naturally very cynical by nature, is that the initial sort of professional start of the lockdown, I had doubts would last very long because we all know that we have a very, very in, poor government. It's, it's very poorly run. Everything about it is poorly run. And, and I thought it was a matter of time before what come before the, uh, um, the lockdown became apparent into the lockdown. And I don't think it was a sort of a, 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 an awakening so much as a rude shock that in desperate times you're not likely to suddenly see a, a display of competence even though you need it more than ever. And it's, all it's going to do is not so much create an epiphany, but highlight a cri- a, an existing crisis that goes to, to another level as a result. 
But having said that, uh, can we welcome you, Chris? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sikle. Thank you very much for having me on. Ah, no, good. Excellent. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, Chris, good morning to you. We were just um, uh, really getting into the, the maybe the nuts and bolts of what we really wanted you to have uh, break down for us today, which is, you know, what's ever increasingly becoming the uh, socioeconomic implications of this lockdown. On the one hand, the fraying of uh, South African society as our norm, so to speak, uh, is turned and perverted um, into a bit of a zero-sum game, given how you know we speak about uh, each other and, and and the economy during this lockdown. And on the other side, on the economic side of things, the ever-increasing desperation of not only you know preventing people from going to work, but a, a government which seems to think it can control everything of the economy and legislate um, not only the reopening in inverted commas of the economy, but also directing what sectors are important and what aren't. Chris, I know that's a very large area to begin with, but let me begin by saying your observations of the economic fallout of the lockdown. Well, I think in a nutshell, I hope that more and more people are realizing just how interconnected the economy is. You know, it's not the simple... A switch that we can turn on and off and expect that there won't be massive ripple effect. Um, everyone is interconnected. People trade with each other every day. Um, value chains and supply chains are massively complicated. Uh, just something as small as the alcohol industry, for example, uh, SAB, you know, they employ hundreds of thousands of people in various different sectors just by virtue of their suppliers and their consumers, you know, the bottle stores to which they supply the people from whom they get the product, the farmers who are involved in the whole process. It's a deeply interconnected process, and that's just a small part of of the economy. Um, so I'm hoping that people realize that with any government intervention or interference in the economy, it's going to have massive effects on people's lives, on their livelihoods, on their physical well-being, on their mental well-being. Um, I think from the beginning of the lockdown, there's been perhaps a misconception in thinking or in conceptualization where people thought it's either the economy or health. And for me, the two are deeply interlinked. Uh, for many people in South Africa, the majority of whom are poor, they have to try and make a living day to day. And when you impose a lockdown like we have, a very hard lockdown, you make it almost impossible for those people to make any sort of living. Um, due to the legacy of apartheid social planning, the socialist system of apartheid, uh, many people in South Africa still live very far from where they actually work. Uh, they were forced to live in those areas by the previous government. And now when you make it more difficult for them to travel, you make it more difficult for them to just trade every day in whatever way they can, they can try and make a living, um, you see the the ramping up of negative economic effects. Uh, with any government intervention, it always has a much greater impact on the poorest people in society Throughout South Africa's history, we've seen many governments um, following different sort of social planning edicts and ideas, and that has always impacted black South Africans the most because they're forced to live in certain areas. They're forced to only work in certain industries. So I think the lockdown is simply a continuation of the view that government should plan people's lives, that government knows everything, that government can solve our problems for us, and the effects the negative effects thereof are going to be seen for months and I think years to come. Um, Chris, I, 
I think I would take the view that the sort of passion for socialism and the march down the national democratic revolution or whatever um, is actually, is an incredible sign of of economic illiteracy. Um, a because it's a very old idea that didn't work um, and and wouldn't work now, and B because I mean uh, let me give you an example: Abraham Patel deciding that certain amounts of e-commerce could not be opened up because it would amount to competition, uh, unfair competition against sponsor shops. Now there are two problems here: is one is I mean it, it displays the fact that the government is the last entity to, to know what is and isn't necessary and what should and shouldn't be open, and secondly. It's, it's nonsense. Um, e-commerce is, they, they operate in completely different sectors, actually. So e-commerce is not a threat to, um, to spas or shops or any other form of informal trade. Your view? Well, even, even if one adopts the view that a particular business activity is a threat, that assumes that the government can have or ought to have the power to decide what is fair and what is not fair competition, which is, mm-hmm. you know, completely arbitrary when we grant I mean, and this isn't just to, to necessarily label the current uh, ANC government. Any government that has this level of power that can decide who can trade and who can't, what is essential, what is not, what is fair and what is unfair, that opens the door to massive state interference in the state. Um, you know, that, 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 that causes the state to then uh, disrupt the market and set up certain businesses to fail and some to succeed. Um, mm. The state can then decide okay, well, this business maybe has too big a market share, however, whatever too big a market share is, by whatever standard they define that, they never provide that standard in any case. It's no, there's no rationale and no scientific basis for it. So I think you're very right. It's indicative of a way of thinking that, you know, businesses and consumers need to be told, okay, this, this particular business has grown too big and, you know, you can't survive, you, you can't survive without, state help or state interference. It also, in many ways, it cuts real competition out of the market because it will always ensure that the state can decide who can enter the market and who uh, who cannot. We've got over 10 million unemployed people in South Africa. To think how much it is now with the hard lockdown and all these governments, these arbitrary government regulations and interference, uh, that number is going to be massive, but that's what happens when the state decides who wins and who loses. Can I slightly change tack a bit? Because um, you, you came you, you came to my attention uh, for for this uh, for this discussion over an art, article you wrote for Business Day last week, and the essence of it was dealing with the idea of a wealth tax, which has come up yet again uh, as a way to somehow put money into an economy that has nothing and is and is generating less every day. Right. Um, I, I take this, I, I'm, think, I think a wealth tax is, is, is an abomination. Um, and the idea of somehow reducing inequality with it, I mean, inequality has to be my, my most favorite misnomer. <laughs> um, take us through your, your view on the wealth tax and how much it won't really help. So I suppose ostensibly the recent calls for a new wealth tax are about helping to fund government um, you know, government spending in terms of uh, in, in terms of stimulating the economy. So mm-hmm. that's how uh, how advocates are trying to to sort of dress it up as. Um, I think you know the first thing South Africans should, I hope, are, you know, are very aware of is the massive looting that took place in the last decade, and that was simply the result of a big of a big state. The bigger mm-hmm. the state is, the higher the chance for corruption. So if we, for example, do impose a wealth tax, that's simply another avenue for 
for looting to take place. We know that that can also be a possibility, a very strong possibility with prescribed assets, for example. Mm-hmm. But just at base and philosophically, I think a wealth tax assumes that because people are successful and productive, they should be punished more by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the, the South African government has taken on the role of providing many services to South Africans. Maybe in some societies one could argue for those, but then there needs to be very clear transparency um, in terms of spending, in terms of governance, where the taxes are, are used. I think many South Africans would happily pay taxes if they could see that those taxes are actually used well. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. about the relationship between the individual and the state to presume that the state can just tax us into oblivion because it is the state is a worldview that the that the state is in effect that they are kings and queens and we are mere serfs mm. who can be attacked no matter what. So there's that one point on the role of the state they've taken on this role that they need to provide for everything and therefore they need you know money to fund that and the state can never make its own money unless of course they print money which is its own problem. But the only proper way in which they can raise revenue is through taxes. So they've sort of painted themselves into this corner where they're going to pay for everything, including stimulating the economy, and they need more money uh, in that regard. So there's that point on the role of the state. And then secondly, as you mentioned on inequality, um, it's very much bandied about nowadays as the great evil of our day. But Mm -hmm. I think many people make the mistake of not identifying the source of inequality. Um, I think it is an inevitability in a truly free society, people have different abilities, they have different skills, they spend their time differently, and that's great. We want that. We want a difference of activity, of of jobs, of resources in the market, all that sort of stuff, of interactions. People are going to make decisions. I mean, some of us are going to make good decisions with our money. We're going to invest well, etc. Others are not going to make good decisions, and unfortunately, those sorts of things come about with a free society. Um, inequality is not this inherently immoral concept. Um, if inequality comes about because of the state, for example, dictating to, dictating to certain businesses what they can and can't do, then I think it is immoral because then it is based on force. If mm. inequality is about by trade, people trading with each other, making their own individual decisions uh, free from force, you cannot consider it immoral. It is simply It simply comes about in a free society. I think one of the problems with people um, where you get this sort of anguished um, harping on about inequality is is a sort of a moral sense without foundation that a certain amount of money being earned is too high, and if it's too high, it, it contributes to inequality and it, it is in itself immoral. And perhaps by way of example, um, you know, I'm sure that most of the people who think like that would look at someone like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's... Sure. Unbelievably wealthy, um, but it, it's it's as you point out in your in your article, it's not wealth extracted by exploiting and and stealing from others. It's being in a particular moment technologically, being entrepreneurial, which is very, truly entrepreneurial is very rare. Particularly being very successful, being entrepreneurial, it's providing a service that people use. So if people didn't use it, the money wouldn't be in 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 the uh, in the economy. And he, by all accounts, as I understand, employs hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Um, so it's a false morality, is it not? Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it's about value creation. So mm-hmm. if he hadn't created pro- uh, products or services that people valued, they wouldn't have given him money in exchange and his business wouldn't have grown. Um, if I, for example, buy an iPhone, let's say it's a thousand rand, I know that's, <laughs> that's definitely not what it is right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of the rand devaluing and all that sort of stuff. But let's say I buy an iPhone for a thousand rand. 
I value that iPhone more than the thousand rand I'm giving to Apple. I I know that I'm going to gain more value from that product. I'm going to be able to use it for, I don't know, um, my personal life, for business, all that sort of stuff. So I'm in effect gaining more value from Apple than I'm giving them monetarily in exchange. I mean, value is subjective. When I buy a product, product or a service, I am choosing to give my money in exchange for that product or that service. Same thing if I do a particular job, I'm deciding to give my time, my skills, and that sort of thing to my employer. Uh, because I value the work that I do. So it's entirely subjective. And for any government body, politician, bureaucrat to decide the wealth that one person has created is too much, again, in scare quotes, an arbitrary standard that's never defined, uh, completely steps outside the bounds of what a government ought to be doing. Um, as you say, you know, if it's, if it's done voluntarily and through trade and that sort of thing, then I think we should encourage that. We shouldn't admonish uh, the sort of thing. But I suppose this view has come down throughout the throughout the millennia. Um, I mean, you know, Hitler, for example, he, uh, you know, he, he had a big his sort of big scapegoat, of course, was the Jews, and a big part of that was their business entrepreneurship and their, um, you know, their innovation and stuff like that. And the most totalitarian societies are always going to try and control people who are productive and try and create wealth, because of course they're not going to be depend dependent on the state. Um, that's another big angle to it. The more the more the state can ensure that people are dependent on it, the more the state can kill private business, uh, the more it's going to be entrenched for, for however, however long it decides to be. So when people say we need to reduce inequality, you can't reduce inequality. Inequality is a consequence. You, you reduce, you may or may not reduce inequality, but that's not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is to re- reduce poverty and increase affluence. That's, yes. that's, that's really the essence of it. Yes, no, 100% agree. I think in South Africa, you know, it's interesting. I, I think we should definitely put a much bigger focus on helping people who are destitute, who are mired in poverty. And mm-hmm. part of that is, of course, you can do social grants to an extent. I don't, you know, I, I think we, you have to be aware of the context and the situation in which you operate. But then at the same time, you also reduce barriers to employment. You make it as easy as possible for people to be employed to create jobs, to start their own businesses. And to that end, you do away with things like the national minimum wage. You do away with BEE. You do away with all these arbitrary government standards of who can do what business and for what wage you may or may not work. I mean, that is removing people's agency and individual um, just dignity to such an extent that it's almost crazy to think about. Mm. In fact, you just raised the one one point that I've raised on this on this program before, and that is the fact that um, sort of socialist um, power, sort of power hungry governments, do not grant their their citizens agency. They they feel they have to act for them, or they decide they have to act for them in order to keep control. And it's it's people's agency that is in fact. What should what should be what should be respected most by by governments? Yes, yes, I agree. And you know, I, I suppose that tells us something about these buzzwords and these concepts that are bandied about. Because at university and the in the media, um, in think pieces, and all these things, we are taught that dignity is important, that individual agency is sacrosanct. All these things, mm. but then when you look at government policy, it fundamentally undermines that. So mm. it's always important to look at actual government actions behind the rhetoric that we are 
you know, that we are sort of bombarded with year after year. But then again, maybe this year oh. or next year we we won't have our local government election, so we won't have to worry about that rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Guys, let's take a quick ad break And we'll pick up this conversation after the break As we ask Chris what his uh, views are Of where the economy may go um, After this lockdown For the gift of the year for your loved one Contact Piguet Khan Jewelers Thrupp Center in Ilovo They specialize in creating jewelry That is truly unique and customized Extensive diamond and gemstone knowledge Enables Piguet Khan Jewelers To advise their clients on the best possible purchase Call John Piguet or Rail Khan today On 011-268-0418 Go to www.piguetkhan.co.za P-I-G-U-E T-K-A-H-N dot C-O dot Z-A IFM 101.9 megahertz of life Welcome back to the IRR show The show that looks at society's daily news current affairs issues Through the lens of classical liberalism We're joined of course by Chris Hacking From the Free Market Foundation As we unpack the uh, sheer... Uh, collapse, if you will, uh, looming collapse, um, and for some current collapse of the economy under the lockdown. And Chris, before the break, I did mention that I'm going to ask you to sort of pu- pull out the crystal ball a bit um, and, and, you know, talk us through what you see perhaps as going to be the, 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 the biggest economic fallout from this lockdown as it continues to bite uh, quite heavily. But before you do that, I want to quickly ask um, the Free Market Foundation uh, on Monday, uh, yesterday, sorry, uh, you guys were involved with, you know, informal traders um, in Johannesburg in a bit of a mini protest. Uh, Don't just maybe speak to me about that and what the significance of that must have been? Yeah, sure. Um, so on the, the informal street traders, um, you know, we, we very strongly feel and we've been trying to do work uh, for them for many years now, but just when a lockdown such as this is imposed, you know, many people, especially middle class people, those who, you know, like to talk about the <laughs> the effectiveness of the lockdown, they're at their homes, they can go and why they've got Wi Fi and widescreen TVs and food and all that stuff and they're fine with a lockdown for a month or two, they can still keep on working. But for informal street traders, um, the lockdown has simply been untenable. It has been I think morally reprehensible to expect um, you know, people to simply stop their business activity completely. Uh, there was no, I guess, heads up. It was just done, uh, the lockdown as it was imposed on all South Africans was done, you know, very quickly, um, based on government's fear, I think, around the spread of COVID-19, um, whether you think that fear is legitimate or not. But, you know, the, the lockdown has meant that for many informal street traders, they simply cannot make a living. They cannot go about their daily business. And this, of course, impacts on their families. Uh, and thus far, there hasn't been much, I think, engagement from the city, um, sort of feedback, uh, maybe discussion, uh, conversation, if you will, with informal street traders. So we just tried to, to sort of raise the profile of that issue that um, the lockdown is having a very deep and devastating effect on people in South Africa who very much need just some level of economic activity to resume. Um, and hopefully... It has added some pressure, and we will see a a, a good resolution uh, very soon. Absolutely. I think a lot of people forget, as we sort of 
uh, look to conclude our conversation in the last six minutes or so that we have, a lot of people forget that the idea of shutting down an economy, um, especially when politicians trade on the language of doing this on behalf of poor people, right. we actually don't even hear from mostly poorer people and poorer segments of society as to how the, uh, the, the effects of government decision really affect them. You often hear from, you know, the, those who sort of self-appoint as the arbiters of poor people and often speak about it in sort of theoretical, um, mm-hmm. you know, steeped in social justice type language about how, you know, the poor will be looked after by the state. But then when you actually talk to poor people, you know, people are very capable of looking after themselves and want that freedom to do that. And this lockdown has prevented a lot of people from, from exercising that freedom, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. And I think you, you point to a, a, a definite mentality um, on the part of many politicians and bureaucrats where they presume they have the knowledge and the intimate awareness of people's day-to-day lives. But to think that a bureaucrat in Cape Town, for example, can make decisions for someone in uh, Fulkrist or in, in Guate in the Free State um, is, is hubris to me. I mean, uh, Friedrich Hayek, he wrote a lot about the knowledge problem and the, the problem with centrally planned economies. After World War II, there was a big push in Britain for the government to control all sorts of things in people's lives because it knew how best to make those decisions. That's how the UK got the NHS, for example. But, you know, that's, that view presumes that government has this intimate knowledge of people's lives and it just it runs into this big knowledge problem where you cannot make people's decisions for them for themselves. They have an intimate awareness of their day-to-day challenges, their day-to-day needs. Uh, their decisions, who they're going to interact with, how they're going to try and go about their lives. And to put that sort of control in the hands of government is always going to lead to massive economic harm. Mm. All right, Chris, in the last few minutes that we have, about four minutes, I, I want to be specific in in, in challenging your, 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 your thinking. Yeah? Talk to me, Chris, about perhaps the top three or top five, you'll decide, interventions that we now need to put in place in South Africa not only to presumably end the lockdown, but to seriously get the economy um, ticking again and actually growing and absorbing people. The floor is yours. Top three or top five interventions that we must put in place um, to get the economy back on track. When you, uh, when you mentioned uh, sort of crystal ball and that sort of thing earlier, I was a bit worried that you were going to ask me to become a bit of a forecaster or a scenario planner, but I would... Uh, <laughs> to Dr. Franz Corny on that one. So I'm glad you're not asking <laughs> me. Um, I think, I mean, the big buzzword being bandied about right now is structural reform. Uh, that's being thrown around. And uh, what is the government going to do in terms of structural reform uh, post the lockdown and that sort of thing? But I think we need to keep in mind we need the right kind of structural reform. If we just reform things in the sense of imposing more government control, more restrictions, more barriers to employment, We'll continue seeing massive job losses. We'll continue to see high unemployment. Um, South Africans will, be, will become poorer and poorer. So in terms of what the government should do, I think um, maybe put a, a sunset clause or a freeze or something like that on, for example, uh, BE uh, on the national minimum wage, let's say until mid-2021, the end of 2021, on those two things, make it as easy as possible for businesses to operate, to employ people, to, uh, to grow. Also, I think it's vitally important to cut taxes significantly. Um, never mind talking about a wealth tax. We need to cut a lot of other taxes, I think, greatly. Um, for, uh, most especially, I think, uh, pay YE, 
uh, let businesses and employees negotiate these things on their own. Let medical aids have different options for giving to employees. Let them negotiate on their own terms. Uh, we talk about treating people as adults. Well, let's give them that agency. Let's give them the right to make these sorts of life decisions for themselves. So just, I think, uh, allow the economy to breathe, broadly speaking. Cut these taxes, cut these regulations, minimum wage and BEE. And then you'll see a definite growth, I think, in business. If we continue down the path of government planning, social planning, that sort of thing, uh, we'll continue seeing the economic devastation that we saw before the lockdown. I think it's vitally important for all of us to keep in mind that uh, the current economic hardships we see have been exacerbated by the lockdown, but the economy was already very, um, very in a very bad place before the lockdown. It was already hit hard by years of socialist planning and socialist policies. Uh, we were hovering around maybe 1% to 2% economic growth. And to think that following those policies after the lockdown will will lead to prosperity in South Africa, I think, is very much the wrong kind of thinking. We need we do need radical economic transformation, and to me, that means economic freedom. Mm, absolutely, Chris. Thank you very much for your time. That's uh, Chris Hatting from the Free Market Foundation. Chris, last uh, thought: How do we find you on uh, your social media? If you are on social media. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. And thank you to you, Sikhle, and to Sarah for, for having me on. It's always a pleasure, pleasure. to see you. Um, on Twitter, I am at Chris Hutt. So that's Chris H-A-T-T-1-1. You can follow me there. Uh, please also follow the Free Market Foundation at FMF South Africa. We are on Twitter and Facebook, and you can find our work on www.freemarketfoundation.com. Excellent. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. And, um, yeah, I, I, we're going to go to our last ad break. After the break, we'll look at the coming news week, what to expect and uh, what sort of issues to look out for. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. As usual, we'll spend the last sort of seven minutes um, looking at, you know, the news week ahead. You know, what should we expect? Uh, how do we see uh, news items uh, sort of developing going forward. And for me, um, Sarah, maybe picking up from where we, we started off on the show, mm-hmm. I think the politics is going to see a, a, a ratcheting up mm-hmm. um, over the next week or so, um, in the weeks to come, to be honest, as we now sort of evaluate the performance of the government in relation to also, you know, how people have perceived this period. And again, I'm not saying this with a, because I can hear my tone as I speak, you know, that somehow <laughs> we, 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 we're heading towards the end of lockdown. If anything, you know, a recent screen grab that's circulating on social media, um, has exposed that the government's thinking on this, um, is, is suggesting. And again, this is not verified. It's just, you know, a screen grab purporting to come from the Department of Tra- Tourism, sorry, is that the lockdown will extend all the way into uh, January of 2021, um, you know, with these phases sort of lingering <laughs> till then and not really ceasing. Uh, well, that, that's really funny because the government's lockdown may continue to January 2021, but ours won't. 
Um, the, the citizenry is just not not going to go for that. Um, so, but I think obviously the, it's going to be about how the lockdown and the government response to it uh, changes and develops and goes backwards and forwards or whatever. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, given the time that it's being taken to give the reasons for all the, some of the irrational decisions, that they are working mm. on the reasons as we speak. Um, mm. They weren't necessarily the reasons that w- formed the base of the decisions in the first place. But the two issues that I think will uh, play out in the next week will be the continuing saga of, oh, geez, South African Airways and mm. whether we will um, have an, a, a sort of a sort of flightless bird hovering on the runway. And the other, of course, will be the new penchant, the new, the new national hobby of writing letters to the president, whether they be open letters of anguish or letters of a more formal nature written by lawyers saying, uh, on the, this lockdown appears to be unconstitutional and unlawful, and what are you going to do about it? All of which are being mm. addressed to the president. So mm. I think that's going to be very, uh, very important because a, it will it will give a sense of the zeitgeist, and b, it actually will say, "Excuse me, government, but we are not taking these irrational non-answers for, um, as you would like us to. We are going to challenge them." And we're going to challenge them because we live in a constitutional democracy and we have a, a constitution that governs yours and our actions. And mm. uh, what are you doing about it? So I think those are the sort of two issues that are going to really play out in the next seven days. Absolutely. Maybe as a final thought from me, the one thing I'd ask listeners to really be on the lookout for is the growing uh, challenge uh, by not only you know loyal lawyers, excuse me, around the country, but um, even civil society of this national coronavirus command council. Is it constitutional? Where exactly does it lie in our constitutional framework? Um, that's something to watch out for in the coming weeks. Remember, dear listener, as we wrap up the show, to find us on our website www.dailyfriend. .co.za for all the news analysis and opinion that you hear and love on the show. Uh, from me, Big Daddy Liberty, it's goodbye, Sarah. Cheers. See you next week doing more of the same. Absolutely. We'll see you guys next week, Tuesday, on the IRR shows.